I saw in a vision, I saw this bridge, and I saw an entry point into Iowa, and the Lord told me this is a city of firsts. I didn't realize at the time that this was the first capital of Iowa, and that there were other significant things that started here or handed off. So Burlington is a place, that there's a fathering spirit on this city where you take fledgling things, get them started, and pass them on. Now that can, that can sometimes be a little bit of frustrating because you feel like, well, man, we want to we wanna retain something, but it's a call of God. And I really believe that there are things that God wants to do in Iowa that must first be released through Burlington, that this is a gateway. The bridge I saw later on, I realized there really is a bridge out of Illinois here. And I'm telling you that God has unique things for this city. And as you guys steward them well and pass them on, it affects the rest of the state. And so it's, it's always fun to come down here and, and uh, see everyone. I just I love these, the leaders in this city. And so we're going we're gonna to look at, uh, over the next couple of days, uh, today and tomorrow, and then Sunday we'll, we'll gather back here Sunday night uh, for an impartation service. We're going to have a fire tunnel. Anybody ever been through a fire tunnel? Anybody not know what a fire tunnel is? Uh, well, what, what we're going to do is we're just going to line up some leaders, let everybody pass through, and God's going to blast some people. There's going to be a time of impartation. It's uh, going to be a time of, of information and impartation this week. And so uh, what we're going to do is we're going to look at supernatural ministry. This is going to be a school of supernatural ministry. Uh, and Because ministry was never meant to be reduced to what we could accomplish through our natural skills. God has called us to something bigger than we can accomplish on our own. And if what, I've got a daughter that's doing an internship down south at a large church. and She wrote me yesterday and she said, Dad, I'm so overwhelmed. I said, well, that's good. I said, if you're not overwhelmed, you've, you're not stretching your capacity. If you're feeling like you can do what you're called to do, then it's not really God. God always called you something beyond you and he has to make up the difference. And so we want to look at that this weekend. And uh, there, are, there are things that we can do to prepare both ourselves and the environments we lead for the supernatural power of God. And that's what we want to look at. We want to cultivate that supernatural activity in our life. We want God to ride in and, and minister through us. And so we're going to look at some things. And uh, I'm going to deal with two things today. My little, my little bald-headed brother will be here later. He's going, to, he's going to take three sessions today. I'm only going to take two. And uh, what I'm going to deal with are some really foundational things that we could really start with either one. We could start, and the two subjects I'm going to look at today, we, we need to understand the nature of the kingdom of God. You know, we talk about the kingdom, uh, but what is the nature of the kingdom? What does that really look like? Because uh, we can throw terms around, but if we're, not, if we're not being biblical about our use of those terms, then it doesn't really mean anything. And so we're going to look at what that really means. What is the nature of the kingdom of God? The other one we're going to look at is the, the, really the foundation to all of ministry, and it's a twofold foundation, and that is your theology, what is God like, and your identity, who are you? Who is God and who are you? And out of that comes all ministry. And uh, so we're going to look at that, and it really, those two things, your theology and your identity, address the root of the fall the roots of sin in our life. At the beginning, uh, in the garden, in paradise, Adam and Eve were living the life, and uh, the enemy slithered up to Eve, and he asked her a question. Did God really say? He questioned God's word. Then he questioned God's character, his integrity, his motives, and then he questioned her value. 
And so at the foundation of sin is a misconception about God and a misconception about ourselves. And unless we correct those two misconceptions, ministry is unsustainable at a supernatural level. You will not be able to sustain supernatural ministry. You will not be able to lead supernatural environments. At best, what we'll do is we'll reduce ministry to the best our natural skill set can produce. Does that make sense? And so if we're going to be able to really walk in the supernatural in partnership with heaven, then we've got to really address what do we believe about him and what does he say about us. And we've got to press in on those things. That is the foundation of fruitful ministry. It's the foundation of the Christian life. Too often when we talk about ministry, we want to tweak, we want to start dealing with uh, you know, methodologies. We want to, you know, well, do we do sozo here? Or do we, you know, do you, do you preach exegetically or topically? And we want, to, we want to tweak all these ministry models when really that's secondary. The real fundamental foundational issue is what, do you, what, what is your answer to the question, what is God like? And secondly, what does God say about you? Who are you really? And so that's what we want to look at. We're going to start there this morning. And uh, so, uh, but turn, turn with me to Matthew 16. This is an interesting passage. Matthew 16, you're all familiar with it. There's a number of uh, really powerful things in this passage. Uh, but what a lot of us don't understand is that this was a turning point in Jesus' ministry. In Matthew 16, Jesus began to drop some heavier material on his disciples. They'd been walking with him for some time by this time, but it, there was a turning point in Matthew 16. He began to give to them some material that they, had, they weren't ready for before, and there was a reason they were now ready to hear some things that previous to this they weren't. It says in Matthew 16, after this, Jesus began to speak to them about how he must suffer. He introduced the whole concept of suffering, uh, of his crucifixion, of suffering and ministry. All of that was introduced then because they weren't ready for the meat of the word until Jesus dealt with what he needed to deal with in Matthew 16. And so look at verse 1 here. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees came to test him and asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Now, we don't have time to get into this, but let me just point something out. I find it fascinating. Verse 2, he answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the time. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And so he left them and departed. Jesus, in, that, in, in the introduction to this passage, he's dealing with a very important leadership skill set for spiritual leaders. And he uses the analogy of meteorology. Now think about meteorology is the science of atmospheric conditions, of being able to read the atmosphere and understanding present conditions in order to anticipate future ones, right? So what a meteorologist will do, he'll get on TV and he'll say, okay, you know, today this is going on. My mom used to say it to this way to us kids, you know, sky is uh, uh, red at night, sailor's delight, red in the morning, sailor's warning. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that the present conditions will, if you know how to understand them, you can anticipate the future ones. He's talking about a spiritual skill set. He's rebuking the Pharisees and the Sadducees saying, you guys know how to read the weather, but you don't know how to read a spiritual environment. And we need to become skilled readers of in spiritual environments. That if we begin to know the ways of God, that we can actually anticipate the next thing He's going to do. 
It's an amazing thing. David cried out and said, oh God, in Psalm 25, show me your ways. It says of Moses that God showed the children of Israel his works, but he showed Moses his ways. What does that mean? It means, how does God behave? There's, an in, there's a place in God of intimacy where you can actually anticipate his next activity. Because you know him. You know his ways. And so Jesus is addressing this at the outset. This passage is a very key passage for leadership, and it's a transition time where he's going to take his disciples in a whole new direction, take them deeper. And so we need to learn, we need to learn the Lord's ways. When, when uh, Jesus talked about the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, we'll get more into this this afternoon, the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, he's saying there's, there's, a, mis- there's a mysterious way that God operates. Now in scripture, mysteries are not just things we don't understand. Well, that's mysterious. Well, that's not what it's saying. The Greek word is mysterion, and it means a hidden strategy of heaven. So the mysteries of heaven are the hidden strategies of what God's going to do. But God, the, the flip side of, put it this way, God's strategy in interacting with man is there's two sides to it. God is often utilizes mysteries and revelation. There's no reason, there's no use, no need for revelation unless there's a mystery. And God uses that as a strategy to interact with man. God is always operating in mysterious ways, but he wants to invite us into that through revelation so that we can know his ways. When you know someone's ways, you can intercept them. If, I, if you know my way, I take the same way to work every day. It's the quickest way. I try to avoid as many schools in our growing town as I can. And if you know my ways, you can get in the way and intercept me because you know how I'm going to walk. And that's the idea. There's, so there's, there's these mysteries. So when we know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, it's how God operates. How, do, how does his government operate? And God wants us to be in on that. And what we're talking about this morning is going to be one of the most foundational elements of that, if that makes sense. So let's go into verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O ye of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not remember the five loaves of the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand? I, did not, I was not speaking of bread. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Now that's a whole other subject on leadership that Jesus is talking about that's very, very important. We're not going to get into that this morning. Look at verse 13. Now when Jesus came to the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples not to tell them he was the Christ. And then the transition. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples he must go to Jerusalem and suffer 
things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So he begins to bring them into the mysteries of the kingdom and what he had been alluding to all this time. But it wasn't until he takes them into this, this time where Jesus says, who do you say that I am? And I would propose to you the most important question you will ever answer is that question from God. Their first answer was, well, yes, you know, some people say you're this, some people say you're that. Calvinism says it's this way. Arminianism says it's this way. The Word of Faith movement says this, you know, we have all our different streams. But Jesus, he didn't care what anybody else says. He wanted that answer from them. Who do you say that I am? Because your answer to that question will determine everything else about you. The stability, the longevity, the, the ability to maintain things in ministry in your personal walk with God is dependent upon your answer to the question, who do you say that he is? And so then when they give the answer, Jesus flips the table, and the one who answered and said, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, what does he say? He turns around and then he tells them who he is. So you can put it this way, the most important question you will ever answer is when God says, who do you say that I am? Your personal, I'm not talking about your Sunday school answer, the one you know you're supposed to give. I'm talking about what do you say about God in the midst of the harshest trials of life? When you're going through it, what comes up then? What are you saying by your actions? What are you saying in your heart of hearts when, you, when life seems to contradict what you know the Word says about Him? What comes to the surface then? That is your theology. And your theology is the most important thing about you. And the only way to co correct those misconceptions, though, that bad theology, is for us to have an encounter with God through His Word, through His Spirit, however God wants to do that. It might be a prophetic word. But God comes, and so the primary work, the most uh, important work that God does in us is to begin to go to work on that theology. Again, we, we talked about it just a moment ago, that in the garden, if you, you look at the, the inception of sin, what was it? It was Adam and Eve accepting the, uh, uh, an insult. It was a defamation of God's character. The enemy said, did God really say? And it's, it always fascinate, fascinates me. Eve made God harder than he was. She said, yeah, he said that. And he also said, and she added to the word of God, said, God, God said we shouldn't touch it either. Now, it was probably a good idea. You don't want to sit and caress an apple you're not supposed to eat. But she added to the word. And then, so what did he say? He said, the reason God said that is he's trying to keep the good stuff, the God stuff to himself. He doesn't want you to have it. You better take matters into your own hands, Eve. You'll never get it if you're trusting God to give it to you. And so there was this defamation of God's character. And there is not a person in this room that doesn't still struggle with that lie. Our struggles in our walk with God are the echoes of Eden from that original lie. We still struggle with those thoughts. And so our walk with God is an ongoing walk with Him where He's revealing His faithfulness to us. And we've got to go to war against those things. And often what the Lord will do, my favorite author is a guy named Austin Sparks. Anybody ever read anything by Austin Sparks? Uh, David Wilkerson kind of repopularized him about 30 years ago, started putting out some stuff by him. But he was a brilliant British writer 
And uh, he had this, this phrase I read years ago. He said, God always keeps revelation of himself tied to circumstances. He'll allow you to step into a need and then reveal himself as the answer to the need. And if what you learn is not the answer to a need, it's not revelation, it's information. So if you really want a walk with God, if you really want to know him, then get ready to go through some things. Because it's going through things that he reveals himself as the answer. You can put it this way, everybody wants to know God as Jehovah Jireh, but no one wants a financial need. But in order to know him as Jehovah Jireh, you've got to go through some things. And when your fat's in the fire, he reveals himself. You're like, oh God. And no one can take that from you after that. And so our walk with God, if you are really a hungry person, if you really want to know the Lord, then get ready to have a very exciting and sometimes terrifying life. Because he's going to take you through some things and then reveal himself as the answer to that need. And if you're wanting a real safe, secure life where you're never, you're never provoked into need, then it's, it's a package deal. You're either going to know him and you're going to go through some things, or all you're going to have is information. You've got a bunch of theory, but you don't have any experience. I'm telling you, it, it is worth it. Every one of us can testify those times where we've gone through it and we've, he's revealed himself as the answer. It's always been worth it. I, I rarely remember the trial I got the, the nugget out of, but I can always remember the nugget. I mean, that, those are the life-changing things. And so we've got to go through those things because God is out to correct our theology. He wants to you know, reestablish that foundation. So the most important question you will ever answer is, who do you say that I am? And the flip side is the most important question you will ever ask is when you ask God, God, who do you say that I am? Because God has to be the one to define you. And all of ministry needs to come out of a revelation of who He is and a revelation of who we are. Out of identity. Because if we don't have that established, ministry actually becomes dangerous because we use it as our personal validation mechanism. It's the way we feel good about ourselves. And it may seem like everything's good when things go well. But when it doesn't, then your life is shook. What, what about when things aren't going well? Where is your identity rooted in? Pastors, we, we pastors are notorious, man. You, get, you got a good week and you're feeling like, man, everything's great. And then you get up. Man, there's, there's times I'll tell my wife, you know, this, this is one of those weekends. If I could, I would take the calendar of life and cut a line on Saturday and a line at Monday and just remove Sunday and just sew them together and forget that day ever happened. That was a bummer of a day. And if our identity's wrapped up in that, man, life, we become very unstable and the enemy can play games with us. And so what God wants to do is establish our identity and our theology. The, 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 let me say it again. The foundation of all sin is a mistrust of God. It's that lie that God can't be trusted. There's a secondary, more subtle lie that happened in the fall. And what, what the enemy told Eve is, Eve, you're not good enough the way you are. You better eat an apple, get on the treadmill, do something, girl. You know, you got to be better than what you are. And that lie causes us to try to 
get external validation so that we can feel good about ourselves. And as long as you need that externally, I mean, that, hey, it's always nice to have people in our lives that are, you know, they're, they're, they're encouraging. But if that's what you have to have to be stable, then you can guarantee the enemy is going to be tweaking your identity all the time. He's going to be messing with you. And so in this passage, Jesus asked them, who do you say that I am? And immediately upon getting the right answer, then Jesus goes for identity with Peter. He said, you are Peter. His name literally meant little rock. He said, but on this big rock, it's a play on words, and he's calling him into his identity. He's saying, I'm going to build my church on this big rock. Now, this is a very controversial passage. All, the, all through church history, there's, there's discrepancies. You know, the ch Catholic church will say it was, he was talking about Peter as the, you know, the first pope. He's, he's talking about Peter as a person. Uh, some people will say, well, no, he's talking about his confession. That's kind of the common evangelical view. Then others will say, no, he was talking about the reason he went to Caesarea Philippi was there was a, a large, uh, big, huge stone that was the mouth of this ancient altar, and that's what, it was called the gates of hell, and he was pointing there that he's going to do it there. And you know what I think is right? Uh-huh. I think Jesus is always you know, communicating on multiple levels. And out of our fear of being too Catholic, we lose the fact that Jesus was addressing Peter. I believe he was, he was referring to the apostolic call on Peter's life. He said, I'm going to build something on your life. He said, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the church would be built. And he was calling Peter into his own. And so God wants to deal with our identity. He wants to establish that thing because that's where real ministry is going to take place when we have that stability. Back in, it would have been in 08, we had an outpouring at our church. It was glorious. It was awesome. Uh, it hit, at, at the end of 07, we'd had some friends come from Tulsa and, and minister. It was the craziest service. I still have pictures on my phone. They were carrying me around the sanctuary. I was laying there weeping, and people are taking pictures, and I'm thinking the new people that are here this morning are going to think we're nuts. They'll never come back. And uh, so there, this young Baptist kid, him and his wife and children had just started coming, and they let me down, and I'm weeping, and there's bodies everywhere, and I grabbed him, and I said, are you okay? He said, I've wanted this my whole life. <laughs> yeah. There was this little, this precious, he, he's gone to be with the Lord now, but this little aged man and his precious little wife, they had never been to our new building. They had been to a service in our other building that, that uh, it was a little wild that time too, and they didn't come back. Well, then this one, <laughs> they just sat there and looked, and she told me later, she said, we went out to the car, didn't say anything to each other, got in the car, he put the key and started it. We just stared at the windshield, and she said, what do you think? He said, I think we found our church. <laughs> Here's the thing, when it's God, it's not, it's not the... People outside that think it's weird, it's the believers that don't want to appear weird that have the problem. You know it? And so during that, ser that, that uh, service, the, the guest speaker was a gal that morning, and she had prophesied, she said, there's a move of God coming to Heartland. Well, within like, I mean, it was probably four months, it hit. It was in April, and man, it was just, uh, we got a phone call on a Tuesday, Leif Hetland called. And through a phone call, the power of God hit my brother. I'm in my office counseling. There was this crisis. I come out and there's bodies everywhere. That was Tuesday. 
by Saturday, it's standing room only. I mean, people are coming from, I think the farthest person I remember was some pastor from Montana heard about it. It was just a few days older. He drove just to get in it. It was an amazing time of healings and conversions and just the thick presence would come and there would be this fragrance in the air. And a lot of times we would just worship and worship and and uh, life was coming in and out at that time. And I'd say, you get up. No, you get up. I'm not touching it. We'd just worship for hours. And it was amazing. And during that season, the Lord spoke to me. And he said, I am going to break Heartland of hyper-environmentalism. And strangely, I knew exactly what he meant. And what he was telling me is, I'm going to break the people of having to be dependent upon environmental anointing. I'm going to raise up a people that can release the power of God when there is no worship team. You know, if you're at Walmart, you need to give someone a word. You don't get the worship team. Quick, three songs. Okay, let's now. You know, you got to be able to go into an, a barren environment. And so, there was a young prophet uh, out of IHOP that was a part of our church for a while, and I didn't really know him at the time, but he gave me this word. This would have been probably two months before revival broke out, and uh, he handed it to me on a Sunday morning. I read through it, or it, I think he sent it to me because it was on my hard drive, and uh, I read through it, and I thought, that's weird, and I just kind of saved it, didn't think anything about it. But what he said was this. He said, revival's coming to Heartland. It's not a matter of if, it's when, and it's coming soon. He said, but the Lord told me, He's going to add to the outpouring, I think, I think he used the word barrenness, and the theology that happens when God is not felt. He's going to add to it the desert theology. Now, probably why that didn't resonate with me is I didn't want to hear that. <laughs> so I just saved it and... and uh, so we're in this move of God in 08, you know, April, May, June, July. It went on really strong for four months, lasted probably more like seven months, and it began to lift. And had we been experiencing before the move of God, or after the, had we experienced what we experienced afterwards before, I'd have been doing backflips. It was amazing. But it was heartbreaking when the, the presence of God began to lift to that magnitude. I mean, people would come in and just get healed. People that didn't believe in it, they just get hit by the power of God. I mean, all kinds of crazy ailments. Some, some Baptist kid came in and uh, got a whole new intestines. He had a colostomy bag. And man, the Lord just touched him. He got brand new intestines. It was just amazing. And all of a sudden, that stuff started to lift. And I was like, Lord. And I remember just going through such a hard time as a pastor. And I, I kept asking, Lord, God, do you want me to resign? You know, have, did I grieve you? Did, did I do something that caused you to feel like you had to withdraw? Did I fail you? And I was just searching my heart and asking the Lord, God, do, you, do I need to step aside so someone can come in and redeem this thing? And I didn't feel anything from the Lord to do that, and I just wrestled through it. It was probably a year and a half later. During that time, the Lord began to take me into Matthew 25. Now remember, I didn't remember what the, this word this young guy gave me. But he began to talk to me out of Matthew 25, and in Matthew 25, it, Jesus, it says that at the end of the age, and it talks about several significant things that are going to show up at the end of the age. And one of the things he said was, it's going to be like a wealthy man who calls his servants unto himself, and he gives them talents. 
And then he goes on a long journey. And the one he gave five talents, he immediately put it to work and made five more. The one he gave three talents, he immediately put it to work and made two more. And then the one he gave one talent buried the talent. And then it says this, this terrifying verse. Listen to this. The master returned to settle accounts with his servants. And he calls his servants back to himself. And the Lord began to speak to me out of that passage. And, and this was the principle. This is the little, I can still remember it to this day. Visitation. There was a master who called his servants to himself. He had a visitation with them. And out of it, visitation, is always, there's always an impartation. Anytime God's in the room, you pick something up, whether you realize it or not. So he gathered his servants. He gave them something of himself. Then he imparted and departed. He withdrew from them for a season. And God began to speak to me about how there are ebbs and flows in the kingdom. And that what God will do is he will, he will impart to us and then he'll withdraw. And what you do in his absence with what he gave you in his presence will determine what you qualify or disqualify for the next visitation. It's a matter of stewardship. We've got to take what he gives us and begin to allow it to be established in our life. And you can't establish something in the middle of an outpouring like you can when things lift. And so what happens is God will visit you, do something in you, and then it's in that withdrawal time, what do you do with it when the feelings are no longer there? Those are the crucial times because that's when things are really being established. What do you really believe during those times? And so then when the Lord, He revisited them, and they, what they did with what He gave them would determine whether they were qualified or disqualified the next time around. And so I'm, I'm just studying this and studying about the wilderness and all this, and it wasn't until like a year and a half later, I was up on the balcony at our church, I was looking for a document, and up came that prophetic word from that young man, and I thought, what is this? I read it, and I was stunned. Because the Lord had already warned me that's what He was going to do. That He was going to give us an outpouring, and then he was going to add to it the wilderness theology and when God is not felt. And I would propose to you that that is the ways of the kingdom. What God does is he moves and ebbs and flows. And so we need to learn to live in both because when there is a flow, there's going to be an ebb and that's when things are established. Matter of fact, during that time I started to study tsunamis. And they say that when, a, you, know, you know why a lot of people die during a tsunami? Because that literally there's such a withdrawal of the water that there's vast expanse of beach that is exposed that usually isn't exposed. And so people will begin to see starfish and, and they're like, oh, this is wild. Man, look at this. The, the water receded. And so they'll go out there and they'll start picking stuff up. And they say, man, sometimes in a, in a bad tsunami, there's a massive sucking sound, literally... <laughs> that you can feel the water. I thought, man, that described Heartland after the, it was a massive sucking, it sucked. And uh, <laughs> it's like, what happened? You know, there was a withdrawal. And, uh, but here's the thing, eyes of faith understand the magnitude of the withdrawal is really a prophecy of the size of the next wave. The greater the withdrawal, the greater the mounting wave that's coming. And so when we understand that, we don't see it messed with my identity. 
I thought, Lord, I must have displeased you. Because of the extravagance of the outpouring, I thought I must have done something wrong. I didn't understand the ways of God. And so what God does is He sends an outpouring, He imparts something to us, and there is a sense in which He departs. In the sense that we don't have that that manifest presence as much as before, because that's when we can begin to establish those things. Out of those come new ministry models. Out of those things... Now, that doesn't mean that we, we don't have His presence personally. Of course not. He's everywhere present. And we can have... We can cultivate that in our private life, but in, in the corporate life of the church, there are ebbs and flows. And it's, un, it's essential for us to understand that because it's in the ebb that things are established. You can see it with Jesus' ministry. If the Son of God Himself needed it, what happened? He went out into the baptismal waters with John. It says, the heavens opened, the dove descended, there's an audible voice, you are my Son. What's going on? He's establishing the identity of His Son. He heard from the Father, you are my Son. And the same Spirit that came upon Him and spoke to Him immediately led Him into where? The wilderness. And He was tested in the wilderness over what He'd heard in the river. In the river, it's you are my Son. In the wilderness, if you're really the Son. And that's where that is established. And there's no shortcuts in the kingdom. We've got to have these, these encounters that we have with God have to be tested. They have to be established because it's only then that we know we've kept that ground. And it's not that it's a, a result of displeasing God. It's not that it's the result of, you know, that we failed in some regard. No, it's, it's part of the school of Christ. It's, it's a part of the, the ways of the kingdom of heaven. The mystery of the kingdom. It's God's ways. And so he'll take us into those times. So anytime you have a fresh visitation, a fresh encounter, just be aware that God's going to take you into a wilderness experience to establish that. It's not that you did anything wrong. It's because you did something right. You received an impartation. And so when you begin to doubt, that is the purpose. He's trying to confront those belief systems. Do you really trust me? Who do you say that I am? And God is out to establish those things. There's, when we get to the place in our maturity that we can stand, in the, when life seems to contradict what we know the Word says about God, and we refuse to interpret God through our circumstances, but instead we interpret our circumstances through God. Even when it's not changing, it doesn't matter. I know this about God. I was, I was talking with someone the other day, and, and uh, it's a young guy that has some health issues and he was just really troubled and just going through it and, and uh, I saw him praying and he was crying just saying God what do you want from me and so I took some time to get with him and he was just saying man I don't understand why all this is going on in my life and, and uh, so I was just encouraging him man God's hands on you and he's establishing something in you and I said, but when it all comes down to it, the one thing that has to be the bedrock of your life is that, God, I don't understand why you're allowing this. I don't understand why this is happening. I, you know, all those things. 
But we got to be able to stand and say, God, I, this one thing I know, you are good. You are good. I would, that, that is the most important theological statement. That in the midst of your disappointment, in the midst of heartache, that we don't blame God. Because the enemy is out to cause you to be offended with God. That is his primary objective. If he can get you offended with God, he can alienate you from God. His secondary objective, if he can't get you offended, he's going to try to get you distracted. But if we can understand the strategy of the enemy, he's going to either try to distract me with my pain or get me offended with God. And if we can push through and we use that to allow push us closer to him and we make those declarations. We've all been there in painful circumstances where it's so important for us in that moment to just say, before I deal with anything else, I'm going to make this declaration, God, you are good. And that establishes something in the spirit that we can live from. It's sad to say that often the people who are used by the Lord most have gone through the most. And those aren't, those aren't two disconnected coincidences. There's a connection between the two because that's where that stand is established in your life. Where when you're going through something, you can still say, God, I don't understand all this, and through your tears, but I'm making a declaration right now. You are good. Hell fears that kind of thing. And so we see this in Jesus' life. You know, Jesus is in the wilderness, and he refuses to question the character of God. He takes his stand. And in Luke, many of you are aware, it says that Jesus went into the wilderness full of the Spirit, but he came out in the power of the Spirit. What Luke is telling us is there is a difference between being Spirit-filled and Spirit-empowered. You can be filled, but that doesn't necessarily mean you're walking, that you're operating in the power of God. The potential came with the baptism. The potential came with that fresh infilling. But the reality comes from keeping your heart right when that, as that thing is established. I think there's a lot of people who have encounters with God and they lose what they gained in the encounter in the trial when it's tested. They let that ground go. And what's dangerous is that often they're in a worse set of circumstances than they were before the impartation. Because it's like they've been inoculated with just enough experience. Been there, done that, but it didn't really change anything. No. It's our response didn't hold to it in the trial. Do you really believe that? Do you, do you hold to that thing? And so God is out to, He wants to establish sons and daughters that can operate in the power of God and minister to people. And that we're not dependent, our identity is not dependent on external circumstances. That when He's not moving, when there's not the manifestation, it doesn't shake our estimation of His character. God, you are good. And those are the people that God can entrust. And so he's trying to establish those things in our lives. And so you see with Jesus, Jesus has the encounter with the Father, but he's tested in the wilderness. Did God really say, if you're really the Son of God, manufacture a miracle to validate your identity, is essentially what the enemy was saying. Use ministry to validate yourself. Rather than ministry being the overflow of our relationship with God. 
This has everything to do with supernatural ministry. It's not just about how to have words of knowledge and pray for the sick. And, because there's a lot of people that know how to do that stuff. There are practical things we can get from the Word of God, and we'll talk about some of those over the next few days. But that's not going to give you longevity. If you don't have that, that foundation of the goodness of God, that you don't question Him even when things are going wrong in your life, if you don't have that, then you won't be able to walk with Him through the trials of life. You'll end up getting offended with God. Jesus said it Himself, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do these things in Your name? There was all these signs and wonders. But He said, depart from me, I never knew You. And so, it's so important. So Jesus, in, in this passage here, Matthew 16, he, he, Peter gets the right answer. He, he gave the right answer that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So the very next thing, Jesus addresses who Peter really is, that identity. And so one of the most important things for us is to really allow the Lord to establish our identity. And I don't think we ever outgrow that, that need for that to happen. But there is a foundation that can be laid in our life early on that we begin to know who we are. And it's more than just taking spiritual gift tests. I mean, that can, that can help, and th those things are great, but it's that when God speaks to you and begins to establish that in your identity. Sometimes the prophetic will play a, a, a huge key in that regard, that someone will give you a word that you know, there's no way they could have known what I was going through. And they, often the prophetic will work this way. God will give you some information that you know had to be supernatural in nature for them to know that thing. But the real message was not them reading your mail and telling you something they couldn't have known. It was to them telling you something you didn't know. And the reason you know it was God is because of that first piece of information was supernatural. And so it awakens your faith. Does that make sense? And so they, they, they give you that word and God begins to call you up into who He is. Graham Cook has this wonderful... Uh, teaching on prophecy. He puts it this way. He said, prophecy is God taking the you in the present and saying, I want to introduce you to someone. And he introduces you to the you in the future. And he said, hey, this is you in the future. I want, you to, I want to introduce you to them. And then from then on, he relates with you as the you that you're becoming. And that pressure that he places upon you by that relationship, relating with you by, based on who you are becoming, will pull you into the future. And so if we want to be, if we want to create supernatural environments, if we want to, if we want to create an environment where the Spirit of God is free to move in the supernatural, and again, we are called to be to minister beyond what we can do on our own. If we're going to be able to do that, then we've got to be able to tap into the prophetic because the prophetic is one of the primary ways that God will establish identity in our lives. That God will begin to call us into those things. Every one of us need to have a prophetic journal, a, an archive of the words that God has spoken over you that you can revisit and rehearse in your mind because God is defining who you are and you can't afford to think differently about yourself than God does. Let Him begin to edit your identity and get that in your psyche. Begin to see yourself through that lens. Begin to rehearse those things. The fact is, once God reveals who you are called to be, who you're becoming, then trials will begin to come your way to test that in your life, whether you accept it or not. 
years ago, and in, in, uh, we used to run a house of prayer for many years at our church. And I was back there praying one day. On, I think it was a Thursday morning. I was all alone. And uh, I was back there praying, and the Lord spoke to me very clearly, and He said, many of my sons wear the coat that I have for them as an ill-fitting garment. He said, I've got a coat for you, a mantle for you to wear. And he said, but many of my sons wear as an ill-fitting garment. He said, but what you need to understand is that I'm the master tailor. I always cut that mantle perfectly to your frame. And then he went on to say this. He said, but I don't fit it to the stooped over man of shame that identifies with his past. I fit it to the one who stands confident and erect in my presence. The Lord could not have used more vivid language with me personally. I have a bad posture. I remember like fourth grade thinking the cool kids are hunched over. I still can't, it's hard for me to stand straight. But years ago, our, our board uh, bought me some suits for past, or pastor appreciation. So I bought this real nice black suit for Marion and Berrien. And man, I stood there straight and they cut that thing. It looked nice. The problem is I didn't stand like that. I stand like this. I hated that suit because it would pop out like a little pixie dress. I couldn't stand that suit. I probably wore it four times and I gave it away because it wasn't cut to how I stand. God has a mantle that fits you perfectly, but it doesn't fit the person that stooped over identifying with the past. It's fit to the one that you're called to be. And only as you stand confident in His presence will that thing begin to fit and you can function in that. And so we've got to continually have the Lord renew our mind and define who we are. And He's taking us from glory to glory to tell us who we are. The mantle that He has for your life and every one of us, there's an anointing every one of us are supposed to walk in. It's a mixture of the gifting that He puts on your life the revelation that He gives you, and it's also a mixture of your experiences. The things you've gone through, even outside of the will of God. God is so good, He incorporates all that. I've, I've had this grand theological question in my mind for years. I spent 14 years uh, ministering at Teen Challenge because I was a homeless alcoholic when I met Jesus. So I spent 14 years of my life helping drug addicts get off of drugs. So here's the grand theological question. Was it God's will from the foundation of the earth that Dave Olson ministered to drug addicts for 14 years? I really doubt it. What he did is I messed my life up and he said, I'll give the, I'm going to take what he learned from that and I'm going to use it for my kingdom. God takes what the devil meant for bad and uses it for good. So there's certain things you've gone through that will create the fabric, the weave of your mantle. There's things you've discovered of God going through the things you've gone through. But that mantle is not connected to your wounded past. God is calling you up and above that. And to the extent that you own who God is calling you to be is the extent that you can operate from that anointing. Now, whether you know it or not, whether you accept it or not, there is going to be opposition against the anointing you carry. The assignment on your life will be resisted by the gates of hell. There, it, hell is going to try to come against that. But you, 
You have the power to overcome it if you own your identity. If you don't, you don't. You'll still face the same trials. You just aren't operating from the place that you can deal with it. And so what you believe about yourself will enable you to to walk in that anointing or not. And so the Lord is out to establish those things. The enemy is always challenging our identity. He's challenging what we believe about ourselves. The enemy is always trying to tell you that you're not good enough the way you are. You need to eat some fruit. You need to do something. And so at the bottom of the human, the, the human condition, at the bottom of our, our issue, the root problem is a misconception about God and a misconception about us. We reject God and we reject ourselves. And the gospel we preach must address both. It's not good enough to merely be reconciled to God. There are a lot of people who are reconciled to God. Heaven is their destination for eternity. But they still live in deep rejection of themselves. They loathe themselves. There's deep self-rejection and self-hatred. Some of that can even be inherited. You can say it, there's events and environments. There's things that happen to us, events in our life that the enemy will use to wound us and to cause us to see ourselves differently. Uh, things done to us, things we did, shame, all those things, and the enemy tries to define us that way and keep us connected to that old identity. But there's also environments where we're raised in certain ways with certain perceptions, and we've got to confront those things because those things will hold us back. You can, you can believe in the Lord, but if you're still living in self-rejection, it will cripple you because God has called you. It's not, it's not disconnected from your identity. Your identity as a son or a daughter of God, and you're to carry that anointing and be able to release the power of God, but it's only as you own who He's called you to be. And to the extent that you reject that is to the extent you reject the anointing or the mantle that that individual, you, is supposed to carry. Does that make sense? And so we've got, we've got to allow the Lord to do this deep work. Now, we're talking philosophically this morning. Uh, Christopher's going to come in the next session. What time's the next session, Pastor? Do, do you know you got your schedule or, or Jade? Okay, yeah. Um, so Christopher's going to be speaking uh, on the love of God at 10.30 this morning. And so he's going to... He's going to talk about that because it's the love of God that really strikes at that root system of that self-rejection that we deal with. And so we need to understand that man's problem is not just a rejection of God. That is the ultimate lie. But there's also a rejection of ourself. And the gospel that addresses who God really is also addresses you and redefines you. And we've got to begin to receive that. We've got to bring that to a conscious level and understand that this is an important element that we've got to attack. We've got to be healed in our perception of ourselves. Because to the extent that you align yourself with the accusations of the enemy, to the extent that you agree with his assessment of you, it's going to be the extent that at best you're going to be ineffective. And at worst, you're going to be effective for hell. There are believers who are used by hell to release things on the body of Christ because of their own self-perception. And so we've got to have ministry models. We've got to to be on a conscious level to go after this thing. 
Ephesians chapter four or chapter three. I love the passage. If you look at verse seventeen, it's just before we get into chapter four, and he begins to talk about you know fivefold ministry and all these things. He has this great apostolic prayer, and this is what Paul says. As a matter of fact, if you look in chapter two, I believe it is, Paul says, "For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom." And then he's comment. He says, "You have heard about the grace of God." He gets on this rabbit trail. So rabbit trails are scriptural. He gets on this rabbit trail, and he starts talking about the grace of God on him for it to be an apostle. And then at the end of the passage, verse 13, he says, so for this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom all fatherhood, or it can be family, derives its name. The Greek can be either one. And so what he's doing is he's picking up on that original prayer. And then he prays this. He says, I pray that the power of God would come upon you so that you would comprehend the height depth, width, and breadth of the love of Christ, the love of God for the saints in Christ. He's asking for an anointing, power to come upon us, but not for ministry. It's more fundamental than that. It's for me to understand the immensity of His love. And He says, I'm praying for that power to come upon you so that you know the immensity of His love. And then He says this interesting statement that you would know this love that surpasses knowledge. What is that? How can you know something that's beyond knowledge? Exactly. Yeah. He says, I I would that you would have an experiential knowledge of something that's beyond mere textbook theory. It's beyond your ability to study yourself into. The love of God is too immense for you to read a book and just come to the conclusion, oh, I understand. Remember when I met my wife, I had Kathy on the brain. I, got, I lost weight. I couldn't eat. I was in love. No, I, I, was, I was a preacher, man. I'd preached on love before. I thought I knew love, theoretically. I had no idea because now I was in love. My, I've talked about my wife. Said, oh, wasn't that wonderful? I said, no, it wasn't wonderful. I'd be dead. <laughs> I wouldn't have ate for the last 33 years. I was just consumed. We needed to get to a more mature place where we could function, you know. But I had a revelation of love by being in love. And that's what Paul's saying. That we would have an encounter with the love of Christ. And he says that you would be rooted and established in love. That your root system of your identity would grow down and it would grasp the love of Christ. That your, your identity would draw from His estimation, His evaluation, His declaration over who you are. And when that happens, you become, you have a foundation, you have a root system. Life can't pull you up anymore. Because you're finding in Christ what you used to look for in other relationships and circumstances. But if you don't have that, then when things are going good, man, it, God is good. And when things are going bad, you have your doubts. And so we need those encounters with the love of God. And it's very clear what Paul is talking about is an encounter. It's not them studying. They're not going to be preached into it. It's beyond that. They needed an experience of the love of God. So when we talk about supernatural ministry, it has to start supernaturally for us. You can't give what you don't have. You can't impart 
what you haven't received. And at best, what happens in, in hours of outpouring and people getting a fresh impartation, but if they aren't rooted and established in love, it is unsustainable. They'll look back, oh yeah, that was, that was awesome. That little short period of time in my life where God really used me. And they're waiting for the next environmental visitation. They're hyper-environmentalists. It's got to be in the environment for, me to, for it to happen because I don't carry it within me. And so we need to ask the Lord, God, I, I, I pray this prayer over our church all the time. Ephesians chapter 3. I pray it over my life. Lord, that You would give us a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of You. And that we would be rooted and established in love. And that we would experience this love which is beyond textbook theory. Where it becomes a part of us. It becomes our history. Where we know Him. We've experienced Him. And that's what we need. That's what makes supernatural ministry sustainable. Because you begin to carry Him. And your success or failure in ministry is not an indication of your value. Those are two separate things. That's ministry. But I have my intimacy with God. I've got my walk with Him. And so we need those encounters. We need the Lord to encounter our lives and root us and establish in love. I'm going to ask you to just close your eyes. We're going to wait on the Lord for a moment. Hallelujah. Father, we thank You. Lord, we thank You. Father, we ask for a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of You. Lord, even now, I ask God that You'd release Your angels in this room. Lord, I ask for visions, for revelation. Just had the sense that there's there's several of you in this room, maybe maybe most of you I don't know, but just had this sense that there's there were traumatic situations, and it's like the Lord, as soon as we started praying, it came up in your spirit. And those traumatic situations, the enemy attempts to use trauma to brand us with a false identity. And what happens is that when those things begin to be stirred up, all of a sudden all that trauma comes back and there's, it's like some of you have looked at yourself and this phrase comes to mind, damaged goods. And the Lord makes a declaration over you this morning that you're not damaged goods. You've been redeemed. Matter of fact, the, the trauma you've been through is going to become the qualifications for the future. That God's going to give you credentials that you would not have had. It's the credentials of having been healed and experiencing Him. We don't preach ourselves, we preach Him. But you're going to have a testimony of God's restoration, His restorative power. 
I'm going to ask that every head be bowed and every eye closed. I, I just, I like I heard there was, there was a, a woman here that there was some guy would say things about you. It was like filthy names and just try to degrade you. And it was like there was trauma with that. God's going to lift that off right now. Holy Spirit, come. Come, Lord. I just saw the Lord stand, step in between you and that person. It's like He took the words. He absorbed them. So Lord, we thank You. Hallelujah. ask the Lord right now to give you a revelation of His great love. had the sense of sometimes we get pushed into things that aren't part of our skill set and we're made to feel like we're defective like we're some kind of you know there's something defective because we can't learn a skill but it was because that was never part of our assignment in the first place and well-meaning but mistaken leaders try to pigeonhole us hearing this phrase that I believe there's a gentleman here today that someone used to call you a screw up. The Lord says that's not your identity because that was never part of your assignment. He equipped you for other things. Uh, sing prophetically over us. Oh, 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 oh. Just 
just receive from the Lord. Yeah, if you've if you've had uh, in your past people curse you, say things. It, it may you know may not have been curse words per se, but it's like in anger they would say things about you. And uh, if if you would, I would ask you to stand and come up front. I just want to pray over you this morning. If there's been things that have been said over you in anger, that it's like it's they hang over you as words, tried to define you. Just come forward, and I want to lay hands on you this morning. Yeah, just put your hands out to the Lord. God wants to break those things off you today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. I'm going to just go ahead and anoint you with oil. We're going to break those curses off. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Father, I thank you for my Oh, Jesus. 
right now I break that off of these in Jesus' name, that the enemy would have no landing strip in their life anymore in Jesus' name. We just break it off. We break those curses off now. Lord, we release your word, your declaration. You are my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. Hallelujah. Yeah, the Lord just takes delight in you. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Lord, I thank you for this man of God. Uh, we just break off every false word. Lord, we, we bring your word against it. In Jesus' name. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. More, more, more. We just break that off in Jesus' name. Hallelujah. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Hey, Jeff, could you come up and pray too? saw this picture it's like uh like ink like tattoo you know that the enemy tattoos on our psyche and the lord's got like this rag and he's pulling the ink out and it's just like baby skin when he lifts it yeah those 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 titles those uh, monikers the enemy tries to attach to us in jesus name thank you lord hallelujah my righteous son well pleased. Man, the Lord really likes you. <laughs> you know it? <laughs> Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, Lord. Thank you for your freedom. In the name of Jesus, Lord, just release it, God. Hallelujah. Just release it, Lord. Hallelujah. Lord, I just pray you bring out this psyche. Lord, that your declaration over them, Lord, would reverberate through them, Lord, it would break off every false word, every false accusation, Lord, that witchcraft. It's like I saw words spoken and it tries to, I saw like your, your uh, soul, like a, like a wire fence, and the enemy tries to throw that stuff in hoping that some of it will attach and then he uses that to come and just feed on Lord we just pray Lord let your wind blow right now your wind blow God Lord all the residue of those things in Jesus name in Jesus name hallelujah what, what the enemy does is he'll even say things that it's like when he, he says things they're true but they're from the wrong angle so it's it's a lie about the truth and then we own because there's the it's like saying oh that person's red hair and then assuming that redhead means this and we own that lie it's, it's like this sense that I have the enemy twists things and says, Lord I thank you God for cleansing for cleansing in Jesus name hallelujah 
Lord, let your wind blow. Lord, let your wind blow. In Jesus' name, hallelujah. Thank you, Lord, Father. from the Lord. We're going to take a break and uh, just feel free to soak in the presence of the Lord or whatever you need to do. You can, you're more than welcome to stay in here, but there's also, we have some coffee, water and muffins and stuff out there. 